Welcome to Fathom's second episode of Especially Big Data. Especially Big Data, a show where we explore the many subjects data can document while also shedding light on its many limitations. I'm Alex Geller, and today we'll dive into the complications of data collection, why we do it, how we do it, and how far we go to get to a single data point. But before we explore the many places we go, I want to remind you of a simple concept that we often forget about when discussing all of the big data that everyone has these days. For now, let's call it the history book conundrum. We regard the contents of a history book as a recollection of events that occurred in the past. But how often do people remember to ask who wrote the book? And who are they writing it for? History can be written in so many different ways, through street names, monuments, the media, textbooks, and the list goes on. Along with that documentation, the author makes a very real decision to include or exclude information. And whether conscious of it or not, bias is inevitable. In the case of information design, the data collectors, analysts, developers, and designers have a very real power to determine how the rest of us understand the truth. There are so many people turning to data to explain the world around us that we often don't consider the authorship behind the information. And when data comes from a place that we see as a reputable source, we're all the more likely to take it as fact. Today, a small recorder is keeping track of critical data. It's time for a reality check, and when you look at the data, we wanted to get a data cruncher's view to discover the gold buried in their data. Now, I'm not trying to undermine the power of data here, but rather remind you of the many hands it passes through before it finally reaches your attention. Who collected the data? How are the questions framed? What population was surveyed? And then there's the presentation of information. Who made the charts? Who determined what axis would be used, or which countries would be featured, or which form the data would take? Someone, or often many someones, make a series of decisions about which information will be communicated and how it will be conveyed to the general public. To better understand how many degrees of separation there are between the audience, the authors, and the cold hard numbers, we'll take this opportunity to dive headfirst into the data collection process. From the door-to-door -door surveys of the U.S. Census to the mountain-to-mountain -mountain process for community health workers, and then to NASA satellites hovering more than 600 kilometers above the Earth. I'm excited to share with you just how far we go to collect a single data point. My name is Steve Clement. I am the chief of the quality program staff here at the Census Bureau. And essentially, my job is I am the keeper of the Bureau's statistical quality standards. Steve ensures that the Bureau's surveys follow their quality standards at every step, from acquiring data to producing estimates, to editing and analysis, and then to the final release. He makes sure the public sees the most accurate information possible. In their own words, the Census Bureau aims to serve as the leading source of quality data about the nation's people and economy. And it's clear that every step of their meticulous process supports that mission. The census needs to preserve the integrity of their collection and communication efforts, because the population they survey is also the population they serve. It's a transparent process so the public knows what it is that we do to ensure the estimates that we give are as accurate as possible. In addition to the decennial census, 
There are literally hundreds of surveys conducted each and every year. The Bureau conducts more than 130 surveys each year. And through them, the Census Bureau measures America, our people, places, and the economy. They conduct focused studies on topics like public libraries, medical expenditures, identity theft, and the like. And there are a series of issues that come up at each stage of their process, for any survey. One of the most common issues is actually when people don't respond at all. We basically rely on the goodwill of the public and the good name that the Census Bureau has with the public for our responses. The main overall factor that affects response rates is how much the respondent trusts the person that they're talking to. And right now, the Census Bureau enjoys a very good reputation still with the public at large, even though folks in the media have reported how government in general is not trusted. And for the record, trust isn't the only factor influencing response rates, or a lack thereof. Sometimes, people are just generally difficult to reach. If somebody doesn't respond, you don't know what you don't know about them. What we do to try and contact those that are harder to find is we'll use what we call multi-mode surveys, which is a combination of the mail, enumerator, phone. To clarify, enumerators are the people who go from door to door to catch respondents at home. Because some people may be hard to reach at their phone because they work two jobs. When the enumerator comes by, they speak to a neighbor and find out when the person normally is home and then come at that time. Also, like our phone-based Contact attempts are done at various times of the day to try and maximize the chance of reaching somebody. The census really targets their efforts at gathering information on any single individual or business. And as far as the population without a phone or permanent residence, like the homeless, for example, well, there are methods for that, too. In 2010, the Bureau spent three days counting people experiencing some form of homelessness. Surveyors systematically documented people using shelters, soup kitchens, food vans, and those who slept outdoors or in automobiles. And this effort took place in every county of the U.S. The operation counted 209,000 people living in emergency or transitional shelters. And to be clear, the three days weren't meant to get an overall count of homelessness but rather to include those who might otherwise go under the radar. It's our onus by the Constitution to count everyone living within the borders of the United States, and therefore we do count the homeless population. When the census is missing a portion of the population in their surveys, they make sure they are fully aware of the resulting information bias. Now, when I say bias here, I mean that in any given survey, some groups are either over- or underrepresented in the overall sample of respondents. So the final results don't really show the actual breakdown of the full population. As a result, we might have a more accurate picture of some demographic groups over others. To give you an example, let's pretend we're measuring the number of animals in a pet shop by how much noise they make. We'd probably assume there are a lot of dogs, a few cats, a few really loud parrots, and absolutely no goldfish. Based off of our methods, our survey would have a bias that favors the louder animals, like the dogs, and probably the parrots too. And without any correction efforts in place, we might miss the portion of the population that's more quiet, 
which are the goldfish in our case, or the non-responders for the census. It's not that the goldfish don't exist, but rather that we can't see them when using our current method. If the Bureau notices anything odd with response rates, they can cross-check information from years in the past, or focus their efforts with the phone or door-to-door approaches. There can be things such as sampling error, where like, if your target population is the entire United States, but you're going to conduct your survey by phone only, well, by definition, you are not going to cover anyone in the population who does not have a phone. So just as we would be misguided to measure animals in the pet shop by their sound, the census can't rely solely on phones to get a diverse group of respondents. By mixing up their approach, they also get more varied participants. In short, the Bureau puts a lot of effort into gathering information from an accurate sampling of people of different ages, racial groups, education levels, and geographic areas. But issues can also arise when there's a miscommunication between the surveyor and the respondent. When you ask an income question, how much somebody earns, one person might take it, okay, that's my salary. I have a job, I get paid this much. If you ask me personally what my income is, I would think, okay, my income is my income, my wife's income, my income from my investments, and add all that together. So how do you ask the question to ensure that you get what you wanted? The census has fine-tuned their questions, and surveyors go through extensive training to minimize any misunderstandings between the person asking and the person answering a question. Their surveys are also available in six languages to reduce translation barriers. But still, there are cases where respondents answer questions incorrectly. Let's take the reporting of business revenues, for instance. But we'll have a small business in a rural area that has revenue that is like more than the entire town. We have an editing system that will catch those and flag them, and an analyst will look at that and trying to determine what might be the cause of such an outlier. We'll look at the answers from the respondents and see if they're in the ballpark of what we expect them to be. For instance, if you ask a doctor his salary and his answer is $500 million, that would raise a red flag that maybe we need to research if it's accurate. The census can fact-check their data with the IRS, the Social Security Registry, and other organizations, so they can verify the information they receive. And while they go to great lengths to ensure the data is accurate, there are also cases when the census intentionally hides or suppresses information to protect businesses and individuals. Employees are even required to take an oath that they won't divulge any private information. It surprised me a little bit when my first day here, because I'm a former... Uh, Army guy, and you know, I had to swear allegiance to the Constitution when I joined the Army, and I came here, and they made me raise my right hand and swear I would protect the country's information. When you release a table of information, If you're not careful, there sometimes are ways to back out individual responses. When Steve says back out responses, 
he means that it's possible to estimate private information based off of general survey results. And that is something that we try very much to avoid. It's called disclosure avoidance. So, for instance, if we released information of the computer software industry in the city of Redmond, Washington, well, the 800-pound gorilla in the room would be Microsoft. And therefore, if we release that number, we'll essentially be giving their answers. And that's something that we're sworn not to do. So instead, that individual piece of information we wouldn't release because we're not going to tell people private information, both on businesses and on people. So how does the census determine the threshold of whether information can be released or not? Well, again, in terms of privacy, they can't disclose those limits because the public would be able to determine revenues or wages for certain companies based off of that information. And this tendency to lean away from disclosing potentially private or inaccurate data This is a standard for the entire census. Steve said the Bureau would sooner keep information private than release any values they can't stand behind fully. Their data verification procedure is extensive, and they always make a point of publicly releasing the margins of error for each data point. The Bureau wants to make sure people don't make decisions based on their data without knowing the extent of its accuracy. It's not a case that every single cell of information is looked at because we reveal literally millions upon millions of estimates each year. But what we have are computer programs that will look for this automatically, and whenever the program has a flag, as we call it, then it gets an analyst set of eyes to look at and see, okay, why did this get flagged? What's the issue? And do we need to take some sort of preventative measures to ensure that we don't release either erroneous data or data that might compromise someone's privacy? Surveyors need to be mindful of the privacy and sensitivity of information. For the census, that awareness comes into play with the release of data. But a lot of consideration goes into the collection process, too. The mental or physical state of participants, cultural contexts at play, or the environment where questions are asked can all impact responses. At the same time, surveyors need to be sensitive to the people answering their questions. Pushing someone to respond against his or her will is just not really considered best practice. Let's say we were gathering health data, for instance, And we were asking mothers that recently gave birth about their contraceptive methods. It was interesting. This was actually a huge conversation in Sri Lanka versus other countries. You know, we have to ask the woman if it's okay, and then we can interview her. And if she says no, it's completely fine. This is not healthcare we're providing. This is data collection that we're doing, and it's completely okay if she doesn't want to be talked to. That was Maren Robinson, a senior research coordinator and field manager at Demagi, which is an enterprise that develops software to improve service deliveries in underserved communities. In this case, that service is data collection. She's traveled to Sri Lanka, Tanzania, and Kenya to train community health workers how to use mobile and tablet applications to gather health data. One of her projects focused on how family planning can increase mothers' awareness and use of contraceptive methods in places where they might have less access or familiarity to healthcare options. And so the point of this data collection was to see if the counseling was helping 
change the rates of uptake of postpartum IUDs at these places. And so they had a really interesting job because the first time they talked to a woman was right after she gave birth, within the first two days, which, you know, is a pretty stressful time, I'm sure, for a lot of moms. And so there's a lot of context that they had to learn about going up to women and how to conduct themselves in a respectful way because, you know, that's a, a time when you would want to be really sensitive to what the woman would need. As you can imagine, collecting information from a mother who has given birth within two days can be a delicate situation, especially when she might be in a maternity ward where it's one long room of, say, 20 beds. A new mother might not necessarily want to talk about personal issues in a place where she could be overheard. They were collecting a lot of demographic information to see how that all kind of affected the uptake. And one of them was an income question, and they told us that no person is ever going to want to answer this question. (laughs) This data collection was happening right after a woman gave birth, so she's in a hospital. She's probably surrounded by family members, might not want to talk about her income in front of her 50 aunts and uncles that are all hanging out. Demagi was founded out of the MIT Media Lab in 2002. And today it has offices all over the world, from Cambridge, Massachusetts, to New Delhi, Dakar, and Cape Town, among other places. And their main software is a product called ComCare, which is a mobile solution for data collection in low-resource settings. When I say low-resource, I mean areas where Wi-Fi or electricity are hard to come by, Maybe transportation to or within the location is difficult because there aren't many paved roads. These are areas where the data collectors may not have the luxury of calling people on their phone because most households may not have one in the first place. One of the big selling points for ComCare, I think, is that it works offline. So you can download it onto your tablet and then it doesn't need to be connected. You can collect data and then sync once during the day and it's all sent to the server. Mobile health, or mHealth as those in the field call it, is a term used for the practice of medicine and health services through mobile devices, usually through cell phones or tablets. In low-resource areas, community health workers can use cell phones to diagnose, monitor, and communicate with patients. Imagine how much easier it is for data clerks to travel, let's say, from village to village with a single phone as opposed to carrying a large, heavy ledger where they're calculating and transferring information by hand. mHealth can be really important in areas where hospitals are sparse or difficult for patients to access. I almost want to compare it to a food truck, only it's for your health. Demagi tends to follow a model where their staff travels to a specific location to train local data clerks how to use their software. Those health workers can be based in a single location or health clinic, where patients come to them, or in especially rural places, they may travel from home to home. Sometimes they do have to pretty much go to the edges of the earth to find some of these places. This guy was kind of straddling between a health project and a supply logistics, and so he was just following these trucks around that were delivering supplies. So they had this great photo montage of literally cars half buried in mud and people trying to pull them out and when there's not a bridge, you build one. So there was this really precariously perched branches across this like raging river and they had to get across. Sometimes it is like that. But you know, other times in the postpartum IUD project I was just speaking about was a great example. You're based in a clinic. So you're in one central place and you're letting people come to you and you're catching them as they come through. Marin had this really great story about a coworker who was training data clerks in Guatemala. 
she had to take a four-hour hike each morning just to get to their village. And after that, sometimes she would have to walk an additional two to three hours just to get from one home to the next. There was a like a community of people that lived over like a two and a half kilometer peak. Um, and they live there, so they don't have to travel a lot either way. But um, to get to the training, I think they had to go this crazy path where it was like a 45 degree angle up and then a 45 degree angle down. <laughs> But for us, it's like, yeah, I walked 10 minutes to my office in Cambridge, and one of my coworkers recently was climbing a mountain to get to her office. <laughs> Part of what's so unique about Damagi is that they tailor their tools to the population who will be using them. We call it design under the mango tree, and it essentially means that whenever we try and put together anything, we want to make sure to cater to the people that are using it, because, you know, that's a probably one of the more impactful ways to make sure that it's, it is used and that it's easy to use because those are two big barriers. But that's really hard because oftentimes the people that are paying us and trying to put the ops together are not necessarily the people that are using it. And this is a really important thing to note. Those who are designing the study or building the study are not the people who are carrying it out in practice. So you can imagine the amount of disconnect that can take place. For all the training the Damagi team does with community health workers, the whole teacher-to-student relationship really goes both ways. The team developing the applications relies on the health workers to voice which terminology is most appropriate or to point out cultural sensitivities. They had questionnaires that the client wanted to use and the client was the one paying us. And they, they were great and they were trying really hard to cater everything to each specific country, which is a big job when you have the same questionnaire being used in six countries. There was a lot of nitpicky details like, oh, we don't call that an admission card at our hospitals. It's a mother's pregnancy card. You kind of have to go in knowing, I have this app, we're going to train on it, and after the training's over, I'm going to have really, really great feedback. And I'm going to have to probably adjust a few things to make sure it caters to this group of people that then want to use it. So, The team developing the software has a lot of back and forth with community health workers and data clerks to understand the changes for the survey's workflow. Both sides work together to make sure the tool is intuitive, culturally sensitive, and as geographically relevant as possible. In addition, a series of checks and balances can be programmed into the back end of the software to help ensure its accuracy. We can do a lot to help minimize data entry error, but it's not going to fix all of the problems. And so we can do things like calculations on the app instead of having people do like hand calculations, and we can do validation and entries. So if you say, what is your age, we make it impossible to type in like 150, for example. <laughs> but um, there's not a lot we can do if someone mistypes in their birthday. We also have worker reports, so you can look at things like how many forms are being submitted and things like that. And so just identifying outliers. If you see one person is only submitting a form a day, when everyone else that's working on the project is submitting 30 forms a day, you're like, okay, that might be something we should ask them about. Having access to the metadata allows supervisory teams to check the accuracy of their information. For all practical purposes, mobile health solutions really are a more efficient use of time and money, and also enable local job development. At the same time, it's important to understand its limitations. Survey data can tell us so much, but it can also measure issues in isolation. The fundamental idea is like, how do we come up with an actual metric that's measurable and then can indicate to us that it's a successful project, which is an incredibly difficult question to answer because how do you even know if what you've come up with is the right thing to measure? <laughs> 
There was this really great example of this huge donor, and they were doing this education project, and they were trying to think of what measures they can use from the data they were collecting to, to measure the impact. But their definition was if you got a package of school supplies, you were considered educated. It just struck me as really like almost unbelievable that this much money would be going into stuff and we would not really have a great idea of how or if it did work. The question is how do we find the right measure for impact here? Would assessing school enrollment have been a better indicator, or maybe graduation rates? It can be difficult to find a variable that fully captures the information you're looking for. Because while data can point to the occurrence or prevalence of a lot of issues, we need to consider metrics within their greater, more complicated systems. I think the, the data collection can only get you so far, and it is good for exposing these gaps. but. Now that you know about it, what do you do? And I think that's a, that's a question that public health people pose all the time. We can tell this gap does exist, and we're starting to see it, but, and we do need to know more about it, but it's in an entire system that clearly has a lot of problems that need to be addressed. If you haven't caught on already, I'm sort of hooked on this notion that data can serve as a really wonderful and informative window. It opens our eyes to these large, intricate systems, but we can really only understand those systems to the extent that our data, or that window frame, allows. One organization that's done an amazing job of expanding their lens of information is NASA. And to widen the extent of data they can observe, they've taken their collection process more than 600 kilometers above the Earth. My name is Gene Feldman. I am an oceanographer at NASA Goddard Space Flight Center, and I observe the ocean from space. Gene has managed a series of ocean monitoring spacecraft for NASA, and as he'll point out, satellite data collection marks this tremendous milestone in terms of the amount of information we can gather about the Earth at any given moment. Now, for centuries, oceanographers have been going out to sea to gather water samples for ocean research, bottle by bottle. But as you can imagine, that doesn't really give us a comprehensive picture of the ocean over time. It's a fairly laborious process, and I've done it, and it's you know, when you think you want to do this stuff on the deck of a heaving ship in the middle of a storm, it's not that much fun. Plus, the, the ocean is very, very big. It covers three quarters of the Earth's surface and it changes very rapidly. So trying to get a really good picture of, of the ocean and how it changes over time and space from the deck of a ship is a very difficult thing to do. Back in the 60s and 70s, it was believed that we could start observing the Earth from space. And through satellites, well. If they're in the right orbit, they can see every spot on the Earth every single day. We call that a synoptic sample, which means seeing a large area in a single look. And that's really what we need to do to understand how the Earth works and how all the various physical, chemical, and biological systems interact. So it's not that the system of taking a boat out to sea to study the ocean is outdated. Not at all. But for oceanographers like Gene, who are trying to get a holistic view of the ocean, satellites are much more efficient. One of the satellites he uses can collect about one million square kilometers worth of information a minute, with each observation being one kilometer square. 
If I were sitting in a ship, and I've done this, and I'm traveling back and forth at 10 kilometers an hour, and I take a sample every kilometer, it will take me a decade to get the same density of sampling as the satellite took in one minute. At the same time, scientists cross-reference a good portion of the satellite data with water samples taken by boat. And through that system, they're able to create predictive models that estimate key measurements about the ocean as a whole. So which characteristics of the ocean can we measure from space? Why don't we dive into a more tangible example, like ocean color? Here's Jean. Just like when you go to a doctor for your annual physical, there are certain key things that the doctor measures. The doctor measures your blood pressure, heart rate, pulse, those kinds of things. These are your key vital signs. So there are a number of key vital signs of the ocean that scientists have determined if we measure them over a long period of time will tell us something about the health of the ocean and how those are changing both in time and space. And then more importantly, what may be the processes that are causing that change. So some of the key things that we measure are sea surface temperature, salinity. And for me in particular, since I'm a biologist, I'm interested in the color of the ocean. Most people think the ocean is just blue, but in fact, it is many, many, many shades. And a lot of that is determined by what microscopic plant life lives in the surface waters. These plants called phytoplankton have chlorophyll, which is a green molecule that plants on land have that absorbs sunlight and converts carbon dioxide and water into oxygen and plant tissue. Most people don't know it, but half of the oxygen that we breathe comes from these microscopic plants in the ocean. Because of the chlorophyll, or that green color pigment, as phytoplankton bloom and grow, the ocean gets greener. In parts of the ocean where phytoplankton are scarce, the water is bluer. So while we may not be able to see the single organism with our naked eye, when they live in high concentrations, we can detect them all the way from space, simply by measuring the color of the ocean. About 40 years ago, NASA launched its first experimental satellite to see if it was even possible to measure the color of the ocean from space. They compared the satellite's measures with those taken from ships at specific times and locations. And lo and behold, it worked. <laughs> NASA could relate the prevalence of chlorophyll, or phytoplankton in the water, to the overall greenness in different parts of the ocean. The reason I think ocean color is important and it's something that people really need to understand is that the oceans are changing. That's a given. And the change in the physical properties in the ocean, the change in the chemical properties in the ocean, will have an effect on the biology in the ocean. Not only does it affect where the fish are or how many fish there are, but it also affects that foundation, the, the phytoplankton, that, like the grass on the plains that feed all the other creatures. Phytoplankton in the ocean form the base of the marine food web and all life in the ocean, and they play an incredible role in regulating how much CO2 is in the atmosphere. And I'll go out on a limb here and say that pretty much life on Earth would not exist if it were not for phytoplankton in the ocean. As we discussed earlier, getting the right metric for impact can be really difficult. So when Jean tells me that measuring ocean color is a vital sign of the ocean's health, 
It's pretty incredible to think that color is actually an indication of the livelihood of these microscopic organisms. And these organisms are responsible for the health of our oceans and really the health of our planet. And the real kicker is that we can recognize these tiny organisms from a satellite orbiting more than 600 kilometers above the Earth. So how does this process actually work? It requires multiple steps, and to be clear, NASA isn't measuring the amount of phytoplankton in the water. They're measuring how much light, or how much radiance rather, the satellite perceives to be reflecting off of the ocean. Let's assume that the light coming down from the sun, that's 100% of the signal, that's all we have to work with. A lot of stuff can happen to that light as it travels through the atmosphere. It can get bounced off of clouds, but the atmosphere is not transparent. There are things in the atmosphere. There's water vapor. There are aerosols. There's dust. There's smog. There's all sorts of stuff in the atmosphere that the light interacts with. When we're looking at the color of the ocean, we're relying on visible light. So just think about it. If you're flying in an airplane and you look down, if there are clouds between you and the ground, you don't see anything. It's the same problem with satellites. If we're looking in the visible part of the spectrum, the only time we can actually see what we're looking for is when there aren't any clouds. And the world is a pretty cloudy place. The satellite collects daily observations where half or more of the image of the world is covered in clouds. As the scientists average information over time, by two days, three days, four days, a week, maybe a month, eventually they're able to gather a global picture of ocean color that sees around the weather. They can basically average the information from the days when the conditions are clear. So now you've got the sunlight coming down through the atmosphere. It then hits the ocean surface. Some of that light interacts with things in the water which would also change the color of it. So if you have a lot of phytoplankton in the water, they will selectively absorb a lot of the blue light and reflect the green light. That's why things look green. That's the light that bounces back at your eyes. For those of you who also forgot high school physics, light can be absorbed, reflected, or refracted. The light that NASA scientists measure from their satellites is that small portion of light that bounces back, or that's reflected from the ocean. Now that light, for us to be able to use it in remote sensing, has to make it all the way back up through that atmosphere that's filled with all kinds of junk, 650 kilometers back up to a spacecraft where we see that light. So it's amazing that any of it gets back. So the light that the satellite is seeing, let's call that 100%. 90% of that signal is due to scattering in the atmosphere. The reality is... The signal that comes out of the ocean that we use to make our measurements in ocean color is only about 10% of the entire signal that the satellite sees. So that's step one of the process, measuring the brightness of locations on the Earth from the satellite. By looking at places on the ground where scientists already know what the brightness should be, like a salt plain in the desert should look white, for instance, they can compare their measures to make sure the satellite sees ocean brightness correctly. In step two, the scientists relate the measure of brightness to chlorophyll, or phytoplankton concentrations. They've built this enormous database of how measurements gathered by boat compare with those same metrics taken by satellites at specific times and locations. This is a huge database of relationships between the light signal and the chlorophyll concentration. We have you know, hundreds of thousands of measurements. 
Using that, we're able to relate the shape of the color coming out of the ocean with how much chlorophyll would have contributed to that shape. And step three, well, I'll let Gene take over this one. Satellites change over time. Instruments change over time, particularly optical instruments that we measure ocean color with. So the signal that we're trying to understand on the Earth about change is very, very small. So for instance, the oceans may be changing at a fraction of a percent every year. But what if our instrument is changing 1% every year? It's going to be a very difficult process. To clarify, if the concentrations of phytoplankton have barely changed, but the optical lens becomes dirty after the first year, it might read the ocean brightness differently in year two than in year one. And it's not that there were significant changes in the ocean, like the instrument might suggest, but rather that the optical lens started taking in less light because it got dirty. So what we have to do is to make sure that the change that we're observing is related to the change that we want to observe on the Earth rather than just something that the instrument is introducing. And that's called calibration. And we calibrate the instrument before we launch it. We do very, very rigorous analyses using these big spheres with lights and everything to make sure that we know what the instrument is doing. But then we take this very delicate instrument that we have cared for for years and nursed like a little baby, and then we put it on the top of a rocket with a couple of hundred pounds of high explosive and light it off and send it up into space. (laughs) It's going to change. And so what we have to do is to figure out how do we monitor that change in the instrument over time and correct for it. We basically turn the spacecraft upside down and look at the moon once a month when it's full, because the moon doesn't change. If we know the geometry, the amount of light being reflected off the moon should be relatively stable. So what we do is once a month, we turn the spacecraft around, we use the same instrument to look at the moon, and we integrate all the light that we see from the moon, and we say, okay, that signal should not have changed. So any change that we see is due to the change in our instrument, so we can create a correction factor to make that signal become the same over time. This is possibly my favorite part of the process, because it's this amazing check-yourself moment. It seems like calibration efforts, in one form or another, need to take place in all data collection regardless of whether we are measuring the brightness of the ocean or the prevalence of homelessness in America. Like, hello, let's hold up our efforts for a moment, turn ourselves upside down, and figure out the clarity and context of the information we're tracking. And only then can we really determine whether we are seeing things accurately or not. What I love so much about NASA's process is they value these small bottle-by-bottle collection efforts in order to make the larger satellite worldviews possible. There's an emphasis on their global synoptic samples, but there is just as much respect for the scientists dropping a test tube into the ocean every kilometer, or for the community health worker measuring vital signs of patients, or for the Census Bureau employee who knocks on every front door of the block just to learn how kids get to school. And while there are so many limitations when we gather data in piecemeal efforts, when we can combine measures over space and time, well... You now have an image of the global biosphere, the living planet, how the planet breathes, 
how it responds to seasonal and annual and interannual changes. And that's what's important because if we can monitor that along with the forcing functions like winds, temperature, all of those things that drive the system, we can then have a relationship between environmental change and the biological consequence of that change. And if we can understand that, we'll be in a better position to predict what might happen in the future as our Earth continues to change, regardless of the reason why it is changing. I want to return to a point Marin touched on earlier, or this question of how we can act on data once it's been collected. Of course, data doesn't give us an immediate solution for every problem, but it can help us identify issues to begin with. Stepping back, we need to remember that each dataset is really just a chapter of a much larger book, or series of books for that matter. It's like one person's glimpse at a moment in time. The more data we collect, the more we can weave different chapters together. But without knowing the author's frame of reference, and learning how far they traveled, and how far they didn't, we have no way of determining whether or not the lens was somehow dirtied along the way. Thanks to the teams from the Census, Demagi, and NASA who are kind enough to share their time and insight. You can check out our first episode to learn about animal trade and the truth about your grandma's perfume. If you're interested in our work at Fathom, drop us a line at hello at fathom.info or visit our website at www.fathom.info. I'm Alex Geller, and thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.